Okay, then I'll give you some money, but not for this. How's that? Eva, see the see the little K girl back there with the scarf on. Yes. Take a close look at her face and see whose face that is. You recognize that face? It's April. She looks exactly as April did when I knew April was when she was much younger. This very, very, very delicate skin. The lustrous eyes. Now April, April, April did not age well. But back when I knew her, in her twenties. Yeah, I can, now that you're saying it, I can. Mm -hmm. yeah. Father, but the harmony that you had today was perfect for Anna. Because we had a discussion last night exactly about that. How we, as people, we have all these you know, feelings and uh, manifestations that they cannot be found anywhere, they cannot be explained. Actually, I didn't have the answer. <laughs> I probably should have listened to your discussion. I probably better better, better sermon. <laughs> no, I'm pretty sure not. Ours was very. Well, I'm glad you found it very low level. That, but that was very very useful. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you. Thank you, sir. Hello, out there, sweet people. Especially this sweet front row here. Hang, hang out of those. I don't, I don't need them. Oh, okay. If you, anybody, anybody still need a program? Radu needs a program. Okay, now, now, okay. There's another program needed. Oh, Jerry needs a program. Oh, don't give Jerry a program. He knows this. Jerry knows this stuff by heart. Follow Ann back. Ann doesn't have a program with Ann's got one. Okay. Okay, sweet people. Hello. We got a few more chairs over here. You don't have to stand up. Let's start by reading the text, okay? Uh, some of you are still not with me. All right. Going to be Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 to 17. The third of the letters the seven letters to the churches of Asia. This is the letter, is the letter of, to the church at Pergamos. I found that Pergamos in antiquity was in two forms, one, one feminine, he Pergamos, and the other neuter, tol Pergamon, but I've, I've always called it Pergamos. 
And to the angel of the church in Pergamos write, These things says he who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. If you hold fast to my name and do not deny my faith, and did not deny my faith, uh, my faith, even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr, or witness, martis in Greek means both of things, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. Notice there's two references to Satan there dwelling. Satan's throne is and where Satan dwells. We'll come back to that. But I have a few things against you. Because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit, it takes two words in English, sexual immorality. In Greek, that's simply pornia. Thus you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. We've already seen the Nicolaitans, haven't we, at Ephesus? Repent, or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Second reference to the sword in this text. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give of the, mid, of the hidden manna to eat. And I will give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. Now this is a very rich text. I, I'm not going to be going into all the exegetical detail I would like, but I do plan, because I do plan to move through these letters one a week. I plan, hope, hope not to spend more than two weeks on any one chapter. Hope. Well, the, the little one, yeah, when you get to chapter 10, but other, or, or chapter 8. The, uh, when I, because I don't want to, I don't want you to get bogged down. But we'll take, we'll take these seven verses this morning. The excavated site of ancient Pergamos is somewhat to the north and west of the modern city, Bergama, in Turkey. Same name, isn't it? Pergamos, Bergamo. Mm -hmm. This modern city is not very impressive. It's about one-tenth the size of the ancient city. Pergamos was a big city. This city has had an unbroken history since the 5th century B.C. Outside the Bible, I first ran into the city of Pergamos, when as a young man I sat down with a Greek dictionary and a Greek grammar and read Xenophon's Anabasis. I remember Xenophon's Anabasis very, very well because I read it very slowly. <laughs> I was a young man then and did not have, I didn't have your command of Greek anyway, but, but I, had a, I had a young person's command of Greek back in those days. But I sat down and I think that was the first classic book I read in Greek, I think the first one. Uh, it was great fun, it was great fun. I still remember it very well. Xenophon, 
as he records in Book 7 of the Anabasis, he conquered this city on his way back from the, the debacle over in Persia. And he records that event. He, he did, however, he didn't hold it very long. Uh, the, the Persians recaptured it pretty quickly. At Bergama, there is still a small, poor congregation of Greek Orthodox Christians. <coughs> still a little congregation there. The direct descendants of that congregation to which was addressed the book of Revelation. They're still there. The parish is still there. One may also see there the ruins of a once magnificent church dedicated to the Apostle John by the Emperor Theodosius in the fourth century. God bless you. We happen to know a lot, quite a bit about Pergamos because starting in 1878, the University of Berlin started uh, a very serious excavation of the place. So it's very well excavated. Pretty, not as well as Ephesus, but pretty well. There's, there's a lot there to see at, at Bergamo. I don't, I don't see that I'm going to be leading any more guided tours to the Middle East, though. I just don't, uh, I don't see I'm going to be doing that anymore. Am I, Nana? No. No, she says I'm not going to be doing that anymore. It's too hard to walk. That's as simple as that. It's too hard to walk. <laughs> you can wheel us around in our wheelchairs. <laughs> <laughs> in antiquity, Pergamos was a great intellectual center. It boasted the second best library in the Roman world. In fact, it was so good a library that there was a rivalry between Pergamos and, uh, and Alexandria. And Alexandria was very sensitive about this library of a Pergamos. Historical accounts which speak of its 200,000 books, in other words, it was nearly the size of Joseph Latender's library, <laughs> they claimed that the library possessed a large main reading room lined with many shelves, but an open space was left around the shelves. They weren't put up against the wall okay, in order to allow for circulation. That's very early that they, they realized that things happened to books when they sit too long. And they don't get out and get aired. These books were not made of paper. Paper was available at the time. They were made of something else. Now, why was that? We had this circulation system to preserve these books. The more famous library in Alexandria, apparently feeling a rivalry, arranged for the Egyptian government to enforce a boycott of papyrus to Pergamos. They boycotted papyrus. papyrus. Okay. Someday I'll tell you my other theory about why all those statues in Greece don't have any arms. <coughs> have you seen those statues in Greece without the arms? Yes. It, was an, it was an arms embargo. 
And all the arms went down to Egypt, all the arms went down to India. You know the, the gods in India have all extra arms? They were intended for the Greeks. At least that's what Sasha told me. Okay, I think I took a little freedom for that last point about, about but this other boycott was real, it was a serious boycott. The Egyptians would not, would not take any papyri up to, up to Pergamos. In response to this boycott, the librarians at Pergamos encouraged new experiments, which led to the development of what was called the Carta Pergamena. Carta is the Greek word is, is the Greek word for uh, for for leaf for leaf. Um, the word for letter in several languages comes a uh, sheaf of letter. You're right, right on. Comes from there. Carta pergamena is a a pergamos leaf. Okay. Something you write on. What was this? This substance comes from a process in which wet sections, treated special wet <coughs> sections, of calf, sheep, and goatskins were stretched very thin, over and over again, moistened, treated chemically, and stretched very thin, until they were quite consistent. Then, then put into uh, either rolls, the volumen, as they called it, the volumen, get the word volume from that, volumen. And then somewhat later, by John's time, the codex, or the codex, the codex, which is a bound volume. In fact, we still, re we still refer to bound volumes as vo volumes, but they're not volumes. Volumen means roll. Okay. This substance comes from the process in which wet sections of calf, sheep, and goatskins were stretched very thin and then allowed to dry. This was done repeatedly till you had it the right consistency. Turns out that these carte pergamene were far more durable than papyrus. And they became a preferred form for both the volumen and then later in New Testament times for the codex. Virtually until the invention of the printing press. These carta pergamenae are still known by their anglicized, anglicized and French forms of the word parchment. So, parchment comes from pergamos. You, you seem to like the thing about the arms better than that. I, <laughs> The library of Pergamos set atop the city's Acropolis. Roughly three kilometers south of the Acropolis was a sanctuary of the god of healing, Asclepius. God of healing, Asclepius. This shrine with a temple, baths, and a hospital was known as the Asclepium, one of the most famous medical centers of antiquity, the Asclepium. 
At this sanctuary, those with health problems could bathe in the water of the sacred springs, be treated by the doctors. They even had a dormitory where, under some chemical influence, you slept. And while you slept, the god Asclepius appeared in your dreams to inform you about how your illnesses should be cured. So you got a diagnosis from the god himself. I mean, this is good stuff. Where is Jerry? Which brings us to chicken soup. Oh, no, no, just kidding, just kidding. Archaeology has discovered various gifts and dedications that people made afterwards, such as small terracotta <coughs> images of body parts. Okay. You find these in Christian shrines, both, both in Orthodoxy and in, and, in, and in the West. The most famous doctor who worked at, uh, at, uh, at the Asclepium is after, our, after the New Testament times. He's certainly the most famous doctor of antiquity by the name of Galen. Galen was, was, was uh, a physician and a professor of surgery okay, at this, at this uh, Asclepium. He was the personal physician of the Emperor Marcus Aurelius. The traditional symbol of the god Asclepius was a staff with a coiled snake. Snake. snake was probably originally a worm, by the way, probably. It had, it had something to do with the use of, uh, use of worms for extracting poisons, okay. probably. But, but the, yeah, yeah, something like that, yeah. Uh, but, the, uh, but tradition, in, in, in architecture at least, in, in, in architecture art, uh, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a snake round around a staff. This has remained in some form or other the symbol of the medical profession, the healing professions, unto this day. Yes, yes. Uh, I would have often thought that the staff and the, the snake image was from Moses and the snakes fighting the Israelite people. I, I, I mean, that's how I've always, and even when I see it today at a medical facility, I think of Jesus and that's exactly what I expect a Christian to do. Take it seriously for that very reason. But it is a very striking similarity, isn't it? Yeah, very. Very striking similarity. But it doesn't appear that the, that the biblical account has anything to do with this pagan, uh, with the Asclepius. It doesn't appear to me. But it is, a, it is it's, I always thought that too growing up. I thought that, obviously they're getting that from the book of Numbers. Uh, but probably not. It's a very strong similarity, though. So you've got this snake wrapped around a staff, which is a symbol of the healing, Asclepius. Nonetheless, it appears that this image of the snake reminded the early Christians of another snake. <laughs> not the one in, in Numbers, but the one in Exodus 3. Notice what, what John says with reference to the city of Pergamos as where Satan's throne is. Where Satan's, 
Did I say Genesis 3? No, you said Exodus, but you mean Jeff. Oh, yeah. yeah. Okay, good. I was wondering what the poor, the poor uh, Maria and Hannah, you, I don't know what, what you had to make of it last morning when I started chanting the collect for Vespers last night. Uh, you didn't notice. I kind of hope God didn't notice. <laughs> I knew, I knew that three months ago I should not have gone out there and blessed the field and back. I just knew that. <laughs> I must have gotten the words wrong. <laughs> he speaks of this as where Satan's throne is, and in verse 12, no, they're both in verse 13, and where Satan dwells. Pergamos also boasted temples to Zeus and to Roma. Now, Roma is the deification, deified personification of the empire. Now, the problems in the church of Pergamos seem to be largely internal. There was a laxist group, partly identified here with the Nicolaitans. <laughs> we, ran, we ran into them back when we took... Uh, the letter to the Church of Ephesus. The Nicolaitans advocated sexual immorality and the eating of sacrifices made to idols. It appears that the Church of Pergamos was plagued by other false teachers who made their living by giving prophecies that encouraged sexual immorality. Let's look at the text there. Verse 14. But I have a few things against you because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit porneia, sexual immorality. Now John goes to the story of Balaam in the book of Numbers. First thing to note about Balaam is that he prophesied for money. He's a professional prophet. I have some text there for you. Second uh, Peter two fifteen. Speaking of false teachers, he writes, "They have forsaken the right way, and gone astray, following the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness." got paid for his prophecies, he got paid for his false prophecies. Oh, there you are. I keep looking down here for, my, my, for the support I normally get. You're way over there. And the epistle of Jude, epistle of, uh, of Jude and these two, these two letters are certainly related. We won't go into that this morning, though. Woe to them, for they have gone the way of Cain, have run greedily after the error of Balaam per prophet and perished in the rebellion of Korah. Three examples of rebellion uh, in the Old Testament. Balaam is also credited with a plan to undermine the spirit of ancient Israel by involving young Israelite men with loose Moabite women. Now think about this. The Israelites have been in the desert for 40 years. 
the old timers are gradually driving, dro dropping off. They're dying because until all the all the original crowd are dead, they don't get to enter the Holy Land. Meanwhile, you have other people growing up in the desert. Young men growing up in the desert. This is going to be their first exposure to town life. Got that picture? And all the excitements of town. What are you guys laughing about? Chris, I expect you to keep a, keep a watch on him, would you please? <laughs> Balaam counseled Barak, King Balak and his people. I got this completely wrong, wrong. got completely backwards, okay. The idea of the seduction of these, of these young men came to Balak from Balaam. See, Balaam was unable to give a prophecy favorable to Balak. We took that in, that in the weekday sermons at Vespers a few years ago. We went at a whole long section on, on these two, uh, Balaam and Balak, and each time Balaam tried to, tried to prophesy something against Israel, it came out wrong. You know, all his prophecies turned into blessings. But Balak wanted something for his money, and so Balaam says, well, here's what you do. Look, look at Numbers 25, verses 1 through 3. Okay. Now Israel remained in the acacia grove, and the people began to commit harlotry with the women of Moab. They invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel was joined to Baal of Peor, and the anger of the Lord was aroused against, pardon me, was aroused against Israel. And I cut it off at that space because I didn't have enough, enough room to put the whole story on. There's a lot of wild carrying on that takes place and has a lot to do with these Moabite uh, prostitutes and these young men coming in from the desert who hadn't seen anything like that before. And that's when the, the young priest by the name of Phineas rises and grabs a spear. And whenever Phineas grabs a spear, the law of the Lord is enforced. Put it down. Okay. Numbers 31.16 ascribes this, this whole process uh, to the suggestion of Balaam. Behold, these women, this is Joshua talking, by the way. Behold, these women caused the children of Israel through the counsel of Balaam to trespass against the Lord in the incident of Peor, and there was a plague among the congregation of the Lord. Now you'll notice this in the seven letters. When the, when the, uh, when the Apostle John, when the writer of the book, sees something immoral going on, it reminds him of what's going, what went on back in the Old Testament. And so you will, you will have references later on to Jezebel, the woman Jezebel. Here you got, you've got Balaam. They use the Old Testament for moral teaching. Very common, by the way, throughout the Christian church to go to the Old Testament 
for moral instruction. We tend not to do that so much anymore, I'm sorry. In fact, if you quote the Old Testament for moral instruction now, probably somebody's going to say, well, yeah, but that's the Old Testament. <laughs> well, yeah. These internal problems were compounded, nonetheless, by external pressure in the form of occasional persecutions. During the course of one of these persecutions, there perished the first bishop of the city and his first martyr, Antipas. Um, he's fairly well known. He has a feast day in the Orthodox Church on April the 11th. Antipas, bishop and martyr of Pergamos, April the 11th. Several more times, Jesus says that he will come quickly. Uh, he says that in verse 16, but it's going to be said six more, six more times in the book of Revelation. The expression, I come quickly, appears seven times in the book of Revelation. That's a significant number, isn't it? Gary? What, what year was Antipas martyred? We don't, we don't know. But it's previous to the 100. Before, before. So, wow, that's really yep. early on. Yeah, yeah. Um, why his, his feast on April the 11th, I'm not sure, but there is, there is a deep tendency in the church. It tends to hang on to little things like that, yeah. get the, the actual date, you know. So this is long, this is before Polycarp or any of, you know, wow, mm -hmm. so this is. The fact, the fact that the, the church east and west tends to celebrate the ancient martyrs on exactly the same day is significant, you know. Um, and when the change has been made, it's been made usually by the Orthodox. Um, St. Stephen's a very good example. There was surely a time when, when St. Stephen's feast was December, December 26th, as it still is in the West. But we shifted it a day later to put in something for the for a, a, a synaxis uh, for the Virgin Mary. Coming back to our text. The word repent, by the way, repent or else it will come to you quickly is in the present imperative, not the aorist imperative, which, which just strictly speaking means go on repenting, keep repenting, continuous action. Okay. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give of the hidden manna to eat. Now what does it mean, the hidden manna? The hidden manna refers to the manna that was in the golden urn, which according to the epistle to the Hebrews, was put in the Ark of the Covenant. When the Israelites entered the promised land and they got their first food from the, from the soil, okay, the manna came from heaven, stopped. Okay. They took the manna that was left, they put it in the golden urn, it stayed in the Holy of Holies. In other words, it's the bread, it's the heavenly bread, that comes out of the holy place. It becomes a symbol, becomes a symbol of the Eucharist, doesn't it? Okay. It's, it's, it's an, an, an intense form of what, what in the Bible are called um, the bread of the presence, where the, where the 12 loaves are baked each week and laid out on a stand before the, before the altar. And those 12, those 12 loaves, and they're eaten afterwards by the priests, but they sit there, the bread of presence of the altar. Okay. Uh, we have, we have a, a liturgical resemblance to this, and, and not just resemblance, it's quite intentional, copying. And when we keep the, rest, the Holy Communion for the sick, 
It's kept in a special receptacle. It's the hidden manna. It's the heavenly bread, the bread that came down from heaven. The rabbis wrote a lot on this. I've got, I didn't put this in my notes at all because it would be way too, way too involved. In the, in the Talmud, for example, they speculate on what level of heaven the manna fell from because they had already established that the millstones were in the sixth heaven. <laughs> okay. The millstones to grind the wheat for the, for the manna. Okay. And man ate, according to, the book of, according to the book of Ecclesiasticus, man ate the bread of angels. Okay. Now, that imagery all appears, comes appearing in our liturgical hymnic texts. More in the West than in the East, because we've never had a, we've never had a Eucharistic controversy. Not, not really. In the East, nothing comparable to the Berengarian controversy in the West. That's why we don't, strictly speaking, have the kind of uh, Eucharistic hymns they have. And no, and, and as far as I can see, we haven't really developed a tabernacle piety in the East. It tends to be more in the West in response to the heresies of Berengarius and, 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 and people like that. But the imagery is still there. The, 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 the hidden manna is still, is still there, even where it comes. So what does the hidden manna mean in this context? You get that when you overcome. So the hidden manna means the life of heaven, where man will once again eat the bread of angels. Uh, what Thomas Aquinas' hymn calls the panis angelicus, uh, the angelic bread. Uh, that is uh, actually, Thomas Aquinas' hymn, but that's actually in the text of, uh, it's in the te text, it's in the, it's in the Vulgate uh, Bible text, you know, panis angelicus, man ate the bread of angels. Um, Panem, oh no, no, Panem Angelorum Mandu Homo. That's in Psalms, Psalm 77. Uh, Panem Angelorum Mandu Homo. Man, eat, man has eaten the, the bread of the angels. Also, besides this bread of the angels, of these, in this hidden manna, we're going to receive a, a stone. Um, the stone is elsewhere described as a, a white stone and a new name on it. Okay. Now, who, what does that mean? I think that means that's our identity in Christ. Yeah. This, is, this is the name by which the Good Shepherd calls each of his sheep by name. Yeah. Uh, but it has, to do, it has to do with our identity in Christ, and this, this name is written down. The name is, notice that, that the name is written down in stone. That's what I find interesting. The name is written down in stone. Uh, sort of like the, the way we, we put the names in stone when somebody's died. The name is in stone. In other words, it's fixed. It's all, our identity is already hidden in God, but it's, but it's fixed. Now let me take one other thing. I, we, we could have taken this at any point, but I decided to do it today. He's writing the letters to the angels. Find any that strange? <laughs> Writing letters to the angels. Why would he write letters to the angels? Joseph, I suspect you have a theory on that. Mm -hmm. Go ahead. <laughs> All right, well, angel also means messenger, one who conveys the word, so it would be the pastors. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I, I was pretty sure you knew that. Mm -hmm. uh, I wasn't trying to stump you. <laughs> okay. The word for angel, angelos, it's simply the Greek word meaning messenger. The messenger. Um, when the, uh, the scriptures talk about the coming of John the Baptist, I will send my angelos, 
before my face, okay? my messenger, my angel. Okay? In some uh, icon iconographical traditions, where is Eva? There's Eva. Eva, you're aware of this. You sometimes have John the Baptist on the iconostas with angelic wings. He lives the angelic life. What does it say? The monastic life. He lives in the desert and starts, and he's in communion with the angels and starts, he's, his whole being starts to take on certain angelic properties. Okay. Um, the, the, the interpretation that Joseph just gave to this is, I believe, the correct one. Uh, it's certainly the traditional one that the angels of the churches are the bishops, the local pastors the ones who proclaim the word of God. They're, God. they're God's messengers to the churches. So he's writing to the angels, simply out of respect that these are the men who have the, the care, the pastoral care of the flock of God. And I believe, that is the, I believe that's the correct interpretation. I was hoping Joseph wasn't going to give me some other theory that I'd never heard of before. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, Phil. Well, I think John was confined, uh, and therefore the churches would have had to send somebody to him if the, in order to get any of his correspondence or wisdom, and that person would obviously be a messenger. Yeah, that's fair enough. That's fair enough. I, I won't argue with that. Can't argue with that at all. In fact, that would that that would that would fit right in. If you remember. When, when Ignatius, on his way to uh, on his way to Rome, except to every church that he writes, except the Church of Rome, but to the other five churches to which he writes, he uh, he names the bishop. Okay. And in some of these cases, the bishop were, had been sent by the congregation to visit with and, and convey the readings of the churches to Ignatius as he was going to Rome. That would that that would fit in right in with, with what Joseph said. Yeah. Yes, Eva. I think so. With the, the with the uh, yeah, the, the, the he walks he 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 holds this he holds the seven stars in his hand, and he walks among the lampstands, and the, in the lamps there are the are the bishops of the church. Um, that would fit in very well with what the tradition that was recognized through Eusebius, for example, of um, these Asian churches tracing their bishops back to the Apostle John. Any other questions? Well, I'm going to let you go because I've, I've given you all that I prepared, uh, and I will. Any questions? Yes, yes, please. Um, you didn't happen to mention Nietzsche, but would he have fit in to uh, point one? No, just the opposite. Just the opposite. Just the opposite. I think. I think maybe even just the opposite. Okay. I, it seems to me. It seems to me that the developments that were taking place are still going on, but began at the University of Sussex in England back in the 60s. They appear to me a, a break with Nietzsche. I, I, Joseph, you have something on that? Oh, actually, I have another question. When we talk about the evolutionary-based altruism, has anybody, to your knowledge, done, or anybody's here, done any work on the other side of the coin, the evolutionary-based, or let's say, revenge? Because <laughs> animals don't get revenge. <laughs> 
humans do. Some, some of them do, actually. I've got a cat that does that. <laughs> actually, Joseph, I, the, the, I don't know if I would call it revenge, but when, if, you, if you neglect a pet, the pet may get back at you. Uh, now, whether we call that revenge, it's certainly anger. So a dog, for example, that's neglected will chew up the furniture, tear down the curtains and things of this sort. Um, oh, and certainly ignore you. It certainly ignore you. Remember when we would go and uh, we'd come back, we had, a, we had, a, we had an immense uh, German shepherd when we were first married, colossal German shepherd. Um, his, we, his name was Xenophon, uh, and all the other dogs did look up to him. But he was at least a 100-pound German shepherd. He was a, a big dog. But he used to get his feelings hurt. <laughs> we'd come and get him out of the, we put him in a kennel when we went on trips. Come and get him out. He'd pout for a deer or two. Uh, but that is very interesting because I don't, I don't know of any animal that gets revenge the way that human beings do. Uh, we'll keep it, keep it going for years and years and years and years and years. And years, and years, and years. <laughs> don't skip up that or Thank you. I, I feel very happy with that. That's because that's very much. It, it's that's why we need God because we're separate. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Good point. Yeah. Good point. Yeah. Father Joseph. Oh, it's running now. Oh, that's right. Yeah. I've forgotten that. Yeah. yeah. Silouan. Yes, Father, you spoke of the virtues this morning. I was wondering if you might comment a little bit more. You talked about what would be considered the natural virtues as opposed to the virtues that we develop in our spiritual, in our life. That there are many people who have the natural virtues. Let me, let me not do it. <laughs> that 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 it, it, it's something that could come up with my sermon, but it's really not in line with my sermon, so I'm really not prepared to, to address it. Um, now, if, it, if we had another Sunday school session after this, you could probably. <laughs> <laughs> after you, you, you listen, sweet people, the last 30 minutes, I've been going on automatic pilot because there are no living cells between my left and right ears. <laughs> You're saying you would need at least that much time to give it out. Glory to the Father, through the Son, in the Holy Spirit, now and ever, the God who is, who was, and is to come at the end of time. Amen. Father,